0: Welcome to The Writer's Edge, a podcast exploring writing across the disciplines from the arts to the sciences and everything in between. We're coming to you from Shark Tank number two in the NSU Writing and Communication Center on the fourth floor of the Alvin Sherman Library in Davie, Florida. I'm Eric Mason, the faculty coordinator at the Writing and Communication Center and one of the hosts of The Writer's Edge. Today, we're talking with Dr. Chris Jackson, a professor in the Department of Literature and Modern Languages at NSU, We're talking to her today on the cusp of her retirement as she reflects on a career of teaching and writing, and her love of reading and writing detective fiction. Welcome, Chris, and thank you for talking with us. My pleasure. As university professors, we often take on several roles, teacher, administrator, researcher, but do you identify with the label of writer?
1: Definitely. Label isn't exactly the right word. I'd say it is who I am. From the time I was old enough to even know what a story was, I knew I had to write stories, make up stories, put them on paper. In third or fourth grade, my friend and I wanted to write a story about counterfeiters, and we were stealing math paper in the class, so to write on this, and the teacher discovered it. But then when she just figured out what we were doing, she notified the local library and the library took our handwritten scribbles with our little pencils and typed it up and put it in the library. So that was my first publication. I was about eight or nine. And just this whole idea of inventing a world where people could really experience life through some of the things that I wanted them to do and to just give another reader that idea was always a goal of mine. And I kind of think that it's almost The way my brain works. I'm not a logical person. I don't do very well with linear skills. But as far as like analogical skills, what does it make you think of? What does it make you want to do? How could this be a conflict? How do you work this out? I'm always thinking of that. The ideas just come to me constantly. I don't think I could live long enough to write out all of them. But my antenna is always out. And how I start a project is... The antenna picks up something and then I'll start to pay attention to it. I'll jot down ideas and then begin to pay more attention and develop it.
0: That leads me to a question I was going to ask later, but mm-hmm. you talked about your writing process a little bit about getting ideas that they're coming in constantly. Mm-hmm. And I know you've done some research on creativity mm-hmm. and the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wonder what you think about you know how creativity works mm-hmm. and that kind of process of coming up with ideas. You said the writer has to pay attention. Yeah. Like, how does that work for you?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I do think that the brain is wired in a different way. And it's just bad to say, but people talk to me in my head. I see things in my head. These hallucinations kind of come. And I had mentioned in a creativity seminar that the idea is akin to going to a movie and then having to leave the movie in the middle of of it. But then you know the movie is always there. And so then the next time you sit down to write, it's like returning to the movie and picking up on where you had left off. So I know it sounds crazy. I do know the difference between what is my creation and what the real world is, but it's just how I I work. And I've talked with other writers about this too. There might be a similar kind of connection as well with them, but it is definitely always there.
0: Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily uncommon for uh, writers and madness to, to, to not go together <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and i think sometimes people assume that writers are all together have it down that a successful writer must not be that that that's only people who are struggling trying but right. i think we all struggle as right. writers with, oh
1: yeah
0: yeah uh, let me remember to congratulate you because it was recently announced that you will be retiring from nsu this year so yes. congratulations thank you sorry to lose you yeah um but maybe you can just talk briefly about Kind of why you came to NSU and what kept you here for, I think, over Hmm. 30 years. Yeah.
1: Yeah, just that 30 years. I had been teaching in New Hampshire and then Maine. And after a very bad winter up in Maine in the late 80s, and the school was having financial troubles, my husband and I came down here to visit some relatives. And we said, let's live here, kind of like Bill Murray and Groundhog Day, you know. And so we looked around at different uh, schools. I applied to some schools. Rollins was like the first one. And then uh, Nova. And I'd been hearing good things about Nova. So we were on vacation, and I came over to see, well, maybe, you know, did they have any openings? And they said, yes, they just did have one. This was in the spring of 89. And I talked with Ed Steve, and they said, you can talk with Dr. Steve. And I said, wow, Nova's the kind of place that uses professors' first names, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, like Dr. Mike or, or Dr. Bob or something like that. But I spoke with him, and then he said, I would like you to meet with some of the other folks, too. So then I met with Kate, and I was impressed that her daughter was reading The Handmaid's Tale, and the daughter, Kirsten, at that time was, you know, preteen. I thought, wow, that's an advanced kid. This was at a time when the library was in the bottom floor of Parker, the parking lot was not much to look at. Everything was very scraggly and scrawny. But there was something here. As I was speaking with these colleagues, I said, I know these people. They, they have the same kinds of books on their shelves. We spoke the same language. They talked about the same kinds of uh, challenges with students. Uh, Nova was a generalist school with different curricula. And I was, above all, you know, very multidisciplinary in my approaches. So I thought, well, this is a great place. It would be wonderful if I could get a position here. And then about a few weeks later, I got a call from uh, Ed Steve offering me the job. So that August, I came down, and that was 89. So Excellent.
0: So you were just talking about the community here at NSU, uh, but I know you've also been very involved in the community in the local community, people outside of the academy, especially with a group such as the Florida Chapter of Mystery Writers of America. So I wonder how you got involved with that. Why is it important to you as a writer to be involved in those kind of groups?
1: Yeah, well, I had gone to a book signing and a mystery writer named Barbara Parker was signing her first novel at a store that was near where the current Barnes & Noble is. But Barnes & Noble was yet to Uh, be developed. I was so impressed by Barbara and her discussion of the writing process and the people who were there in the audience. And Daniel Keyes was one of the guys in the audience, the man who wrote Flowers for Algernon. And I was like very impressed by the fact that Barbara would have had that following. But just that whole idea of understanding writers and the process Uh, made me intrigued, and Barbara, as a member of the Mystery Writers of America, talked to me about it and invited me to a luncheon. So I did go, and uh, this is uh, the Florida chapter of a national writing organization, and at that time they met up in a horrible restaurant. But it didn't matter where we met because people would talk about their works in progress and their uh, difficulties with publishing and ways to kill people. And for this reason, we couldn't have our luncheons where other people were eating because we would talk about, well, gee, what if the, what if he starts to choke on that poison in the mashed potatoes, or, gee, the cholesterol in the key lime uh, gathers around your heart and look, and it looks like. Uh, It looks like all that gunk that's in an autopsy. So we were not allowed really in polite society. But I was hooked. And I had been reading mystery novels for years. Uh, Sue Grafton was a particular favorite of mine. And she just died like last year. But she was the writer of the alphabet murders, like A is for alibi, B is for burglar. And she got all the way up to why... And then she passed away, so there will be no Z as part of her series. But the whole idea of a young woman being part law enforcement, part intuitive to solve a murder was really intriguing to me. And uh, so I began writing my own work in progress with a character who would solve crimes and be kind of snarky, and uh, her name was Andy Knight, and I named her Knight for the, because of the Nova Knight, actually, K-N-I-G-H-T, but there's a kind of a noirish pun on the name Knight. And Andy had been a cop, in my mind, uh, and in the manuscript Andy was a cop, but she was taking on cases of murders that the cops had not really done a good job at and had clients. and So I was discovering the genre and uh, working in that way, um, trying to come up with other other ideas and along the way um, meeting other writers. After the Barnes & Noble opened, I took on a job of the Mystery Lovers Book Discussion Group monthly. And at first, I would pick the books for the uh, members to analyze. And then after a while, they began picking their own. And I was really happy about that because the people took on their... uh, uh, They began to analyze in a much greater depth, for example rather than saying, oh, I like this book, or oh, I didn't like this book. I was amazed when people were saying, yeah, well, what about this character as a protagonist? Boy, the, you know, not very believable detective work. Or what about the symbol of the, the boat crossing? How do we deal with that? How does that fit in? So it was really a literature teacher's dream to have these people understand more about um, literature. And so then after beginning that facilitating... I began to get more gigs in leading panel discussions and even developing panels and big programs, not only for the mystery writers down here, but for the national group. Every year they would have a big development of the Edgars Week. And a couple of times I was very privileged to work with Mary Higgins Clark and uh, some some of the hottest detective um, writers, Ian Rankin. Um, Michael Connolly, Laura Lippmann, Lisa Scattellini. And so it was just really a cool thing to hang out with writers, although you realize hanging out with writers does not magically mean that you are touched with the <laughs> writing genius. But it, you know it is a lot of hard work and p- paying attention, having your antenna open to what will work in a writing, what won't. Um, how do you play the game of getting published, getting an agent? And so that has been a very exciting element for me. The writing community here in, in Plantation, moving up to like Boca and Deerfield, and then going to New York. It's been cool.
0: You know, personally, I'm glad to hear that that's going on because I spent a lot of time in Tampa mm. uh, during my graduate school days, and we had the Sun Coast Writers Conference there at the time, oh, but, yeah, which yeah. has since become defunct. Um, mm-hmm. But I think writers often need those sorts of communities both to get inspired, but also like the technical knowledge, the legal knowledge, so, like what it takes right. to get something published and accepted. Right. Uh, those are things that even if you are a great lyricist or, you know, if you're great with words, you don't always know what comes after that. Right. Since you were talking about, you know, mystery writing and such, let me actually ask you about something you wrote in your book, Myth and Ritual and Women's Detective Fiction. Okay. So you write that far from being just escapist fair, Detective fiction represents a broad pattern of literary and cultural significance because the genre reflects and in turn shapes our culture. It deserves to be better understood.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So what does detective fiction tell us about our culture?
1: That we try to control the terrible things that can happen. And by reading detective fiction, we see uh, that gives us an illusion that we can control a number of uncontrollable situations like death like uh, A Psychological Disturbance, like Understanding Knowledge, and such books like National Treasure, books dealing with um, a search for uh, some very precious gem, or sort of like Raiders of the Lost Ark in a film, but there are numerous books like that, things that go after the, the Holy Grail and the, the Dan Brown book, uh, The Da Vinci Code. Understanding that code is, uh, of course, amazing, and it's like raising to the nth degree the uncontrollability of language. And uh, my thesis is that this type of, this genre of writing deals with that whole unknown about language. And really among the first to address this is Poe in his, um, what's, probably the first American detective story, The Gold Buck, where there's a map and uh, little hieroglyphs and he has to decipher the map. The main guys have to. And so I think I I always go back to Poe as the uh, kind of wellspring of information about mysteries and about the ways we try to control ourselves. I've been thinking about why uh, so many... Uh, women were following uh, Sue Grafton's lead, that uh, the woman detective was an important um, character. And it's interesting that, uh, well, obviously Nancy Drew was a major role model for young girls growing up in the uh, 50s and 60s. In some ways, uh, Nancy Drew was a stereotype of, uh, as in opposition to Barbie, because Nancy Drew was a little more brainy and... uh, independent, whereas Barbie was a little too dependent on Ken. <laughs> but the other element is, I think that women may be trying to follow the biggest mystery of our lifetime, a horrible trauma that had happened when many of us were you know, young, and that's the Kennedy assassination that never really had a completely uh, satisfying resolution. And so I think that need toward trying to solve things trying to get the answer to the question comes from that very key cultural event in history and it's interesting too that you know the kennedys was killed in 63 a few months after that the beatles hit the united states uh, the country really needed it but in some ways maybe the beatle beatlemania and beatle excitement covered over some of the trauma and Uh, i I think the healing hasn't fully taken place so some of this mystery difficulty lies in our you know cultural dna and especially for women of my age it might be a little too far in the past for some listeners here but to me is kind of an important time
0: well i'll say myself uh I grew up with Hardy Boys, Mm -hmm. the three investigators, a bunch of other series that, yeah, I think were about that Mm -hmm. uh, kind of moment in childhood where you really are sort of looking out and thinking about the world and kind of how it works and kind Mm -hmm. of you know you want to sort of figure things out for yourself. Yeah. Uh, So I think it does serve something, especially for children, but I think for adults as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder if especially in talking about uh, Sue Grafton and that sort of cultural moment, did they adopt, you think, the kind of uh, formulas of detective fiction before them? Like, did they? was it the same sort of hard, you know, hard-boiledness that you found before it? Did it evolve with those writers?
1: It, it did evolve. In fact, in the late 70s, uh, Sharon McCone was a strong protagonist um, in the works of Marsha Muller. And she um, became kind of medium-boiled, not the hard-boiled from Chandler and Hammett, um, but medium-boiled having kind of maybe the beginning of a social justice warrior, kind of um, taking that on. And then Grafton had read McCone and Marsha Muller's work and then made her main character more of a detective, more connected with law enforcement than what uh, Muller's had been. So I think definitely all along the way, there were, um, uh, the formula was massaged from what some of the male writers had developed initially.
0: Well, you just mentioned social justice. Mm-hmm. And New York Times book review critic, uh, Olin Steinhauer uh, has written that, uh, quote, our best crime writers are sometimes our most astute social novelists, mm. concerned as much with our country's ills as they are with sensational homicides. Mm-hmm. Do you find that mystery fiction is well-suited to raising readers' critical consciousness about social issues?
1: Definitely. I think the detective will begin a case that seems to be clear-cut, and then all kinds of layers of complexity come into it. Not just the in terms of the case, but there might have been a case in the past that dovetails with that. Ideas about the morality of justice or a legal outcome might not necessarily be the best outcome, uh, the right outcome. So I think that works like George Pelicanos and David Simon, who had written The Wire and is currently working on a number of um, television shows, address these ideas of um, social justice, poverty, intolerance, bigotry, numerous uh, ways that people do not play nice and how they deal with that.
0: Yeah, it's a kind of that gap between you know, what's legal and what's ethical? What people will get in trouble for, um, right? In in the court and the court of law, and, and in the court of public opinion, perhaps. Right.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: I actually want to take a just a second and actually read from something that you've written uh, that I found kind of striking, because you've written both academic works, research, but you do fiction, you do poetry, mm-hmm. and so I was reading uh, one of your poems called "Disorder in Key West." And I hope you're okay with me reading it. Sure. I know some people may be like, that's not how it's supposed to be read. Okay, no, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to talk a little bit. I'm just reading the first few lines here. But you write, Key West spins away from a mainland where it has never fit. My life no longer fits. And then you go on to talk about your mind roaming, this kind of distinction, as I see it, between your location and yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just wonder about that. I don't need to know exactly what doesn't fit about your life anymore. <laughs> I'm not trying to pry. But, you know, what is that relationship between a writer and his or her environment or location? Boy, well,
1: um, the environment can just sort of seep into a writer's sensibility and a brain. But I have always loved Wallace Stevens. And he had written a book called The Idea of Order in Key West. And I had been to Key West... And I said that doesn't fit exactly with what I would want to write, uh, so I thought that began the process of a poem of some of the chaos of Key West. And then the other thing is, it's funny when I, in a poem, say myself the persona there. It's me, but it's not me. I mean, it has come from me, but it's other characters, and that's an important part of creating, you know, a fiction in the poem too. There can be an intensity and um, an authenticity, but I use that line to unify the rest of the chaos of some of the other imagery that I had there in Key West. And it's something where I remember from Whitman when he would say, I am the body and, and I am the soul and I contain multitudes. The poet's voice is a persona in many ways, and um, you have to be all things to all people, I guess, or whatever one will fit the work that you're trying to convey. One thing about this poem in particular, I had numerous images, and you can't just have little pretty pictures, like clouds like shadow-ragged paupers fill a turquoise sky. Well, you know, it's a pretty line, it's a hallmark line, but what does it mean? So. As I began developing more and more with poetry, I would take these little picturesque lines that I had and try to fit them into a person, an emotion, uh, some kind of a conflict. And that is the thing about Florida, is it is filled with many marginal characters. And there are numerous ways that um, people are kind of on the edge in Florida, transients, unusual circumstances, extremes. There's no wonder that the idea of sunshine noir has come around here because there's an inherent conflict between the idea of, oh, such lovely touristy sunny weather, balmy breezes and lemony days, yet there are all kinds of difficulties that people have in this beautiful weather. And that's where the interest comes in.
0: Well, and we're right now, I think, in the home of Travis McGee, right? John D. McDonald's, Mm, mm -hmm. you know, series, famous series of uh, detective mystery fiction. Right. You've been talking about Florida as being this sort of sunny place, but kind of hiding this layer of disorder or chaos or uh, unseemliness beneath it in many ways. And I guess I'd like you to talk more about Florida. I mean, it has certainly inspired many writers, uh, but often many mystery detective writers, from John D. McDonald, Carl and or Leonard, Uh, All these people who have been inspired by Florida. Is there something special about Florida as a location that you think encourages writers?
1: I think there are a lot of people here of many different cultures. And I recall a phrase that Barbara Parker had said, that she tries to have a bouquet of characters. So that helps. And I think, again, where light usually has a revelation, but in Florida, the light is so bright it can be kind of blinding at times, and I think that there are places where people will jockey for position um, to find uh, information about the Florida population. Certainly, sunshine noir is one element of mystery writing in Florida, but the, the Florida cozy is a big one, too. For example, where detectives or women who are caterers, hairdressers, party planners, uh, end up being in situations where they have to solve crimes, and those are very successful books. They're considered, you know, cozy mysteries where there isn't violence on the page, but still the puzzle of how to live in such a populous area is still a big issue that many people will read, and they'll kind of, you know, love that. It's interesting about students who come down here. Some of them, of course, are following a career but they don't know that they also may want to write and some of the feelings or ideas that they've had will in the class come through in particular people who will start out as bio majors will say i never knew that i could or even want to write about that and in a class it might be a lit class or a writing class there would be an opportunity to discover metaphor And to just start out with, well, how is metaphor used even in the sciences? For example, doctors will use metaphors to, or be aware of metaphors that patients will use to describe pain, because you can't really explain pain except through metaphor comparison. Oh, doc, I feel as if there's an elephant on my chest. Oh, I feel as if I'm being stabbed with a million pinpricks. And that can be an important diagnostic tool. But then, how does the healthcare worker tend to all of these pieces of information, and what might he or she want to write about? Certainly, there are numerous poet doctors: William Carlos Williams, Keats. Well, um, and
0: Wallace Stevens was an insurance. Wallace Stevens was an
1: insurance. Yes, yeah. I guess to get away with the upset of being an insurance. I'm Not sure. So what I try to encourage the students to do is when they say, oh, I would never write poetry, oh, yeah, you know, you've had this feeling. And well, how do I do it? What do I do? So then I encourage a kind of a blend of get the little pictures of things and then put a person into it. And this poem that I'd written, and it did end up getting published, it's called Proof of Gravity, and it sort of illustrates that because the first two stanzas have these images to show gravity. And then the third one puts a character in there. A ripe mango drops to the sidewalk, smearing a star of yellow pulp across the asphalt. An offshore wind flutters the gray and white feathers of a gull lying flat by the side of the road. Over a rainy weekend, I clear out of your high-end high-rise and lease a dingy studio with no dishwasher. So what that shows, I think, is, um, you know, finding the images, very Florida, the mango and the dead bird. And then like the a person, a marginalized person, a person who might have, you know, be breaking up and then go to one of these like low uh, rent kind of places. And so, it, you know, then they say, oh, yeah, I can do that. And then they get into it. And it's really a fun process for them, and I think a cleansing one, too. So you've
0: talked about yourself as a writer and working with students, but what have you learned about good teaching over your career?
1: You have to deal with each student individually to meet him or her where the student is, and I make it a a, a point to learn the students' names right away in the classroom and watch them And some of them won't like this. When I call on them by name the first day, they're like shocked that I know their name. But I try to remember everybody's. And then asking them questions. And it takes a bit sometimes, but then they come out and what they say is valuable. And I have said to them, I have taught this class many times, but I haven't had you in class many times. Don't tell me about the story. Okay, I assume you read the story. Tell me what you think about the story. So that, I think, is a main point to really put the focus on them and their development. And, you know, it's so rewarding for me to see the light bulb come on and go, oh, wow. The reason he wears so many clothes is because he wants to be uh, hidden from everybody. It's a trauma. And, it's, you know, it's like, wow, you know, that where did that come from? So it really is magical what happens in the classroom. And I continue to. Thrive on that. I think too, with students in the STEM programs, they get used to receiving information from the professor in a certain way, and I think they may not know what to make of me when I walk up and down the aisles and call on them and encourage discussion. and And sometimes they'll, you know, say, "Well, what do you want? What do you want to give me?" Is my point. So I think you know, for the teacher to Pay attention to the student is really a key element. I I use PowerPoints. I use uh, multimedia, but I don't want that to be an obstacle between the students and myself or my ability to watch the students and see them. So that's been a a key element.
0: Now, I've had the uh, experience of students coming into a writing class thinking that opinion is a bad word. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. no, like, we need to hear your opinion. Like, that's, you know, like, if it's just information... We can go to anyone for it. It's probably already out there, but we need to figure out what that information means, what to do with it. And that requires that individual saying something, claiming something, pushing on that information
1: in some way. Yes, and supporting the opinion is a key element. Sure.
0: Yeah, It isn't just about having opinions, but kind of making that part of why you're writing, having a purpose for your writing beyond simply passing on information from Mm -hmm. one person to another.
1: Right. Some of my current... Writing process. You'd ask me about my, you know, writing community and participation there. As an offshoot from the mystery writers' organization, which has some hundred members, um, I've made friends, strong companionship, with four or five published writers, and we meet in a writing critique group, at least once a month. And I've you know, written a couple of manuscripts that way. Several of them also will bring their writing in. And each month, there'll be 10 pages that we all share, and we rip each other to shreds. Uh, but it, it's good. I mean, it's a wonderful process. Uh, so that has been really helpful. Um, one, uh, my most recent project is work about Lizzie Borden, and the title is The Silent Daughter. Uh, The protagonist is her lawyer, the person who defended her and had worked the case. This is a wonderful thing for me to write because for years I've been totally grossed out and uh, spooked by the Lizzie Borden case. My great-grandmother lived in Fall River at the time of the Lizzie Borden case, and it was kind of a family legend that she had talked about it, how the The town was never the same and, in fact, the family ended up moving to Rhode Island as a result of all of the publicity and the scare that had occurred after that. So I thought this would be really a cool thing to write about. And I wanted it as, I envisioned a couple of acts of a play and I brought it to my critique group and they said, no, this has to be a full novel. So here I am, like uh, uh, 400 pages or so with a manuscript, and I'm still kind of reshaping. And, but that will be my labor of love to like launch into a little bit more after you know leaving Nova, uh, and I hope do hope to publish that because I have a kind of a different take on it. I use much of the historical fact, but it's my own bent on it, and this idea of change. The Lizzie Borden case happened in um, 1892, and New England was poised on the brink of the 20th century. And there were many people who wanted it to change and many who didn't. So there were a lot of conflicts in Fall River at the time. So that comes into play a lot more than I think others might have put it in. And it's been a challenge for me, too, to write from a man's point of view. Uh, Like, sometimes I make my lawyer, protagonist, Andrew too much of a sap and my critique group. People will say, Andrew, I just want to slap him. He needs to pay attention. Uh, So I ended up creating a wife for him who helps advise him on the case, and she's kind of like an early feminist. So that's, you know, that's been a great deal of fun for me. And I also hope to continue with my current poetry writers group, a number of poets who are connected with the South Florida Poetry Journal. Um, numerous um, poetry readings, and we have critique groups. And how that works is each time people will bring their poem in and read it, and again, rip each other to shreds or praise if praises do, offer places for publication, and you know, to talk about images that work, images that don't. And it's always very helpful to look at other people's writing too for your own writing. And I plan each of my submissions very carefully for the group. And after that, after I run it through them as kind of like beta readers, then I will send it out for publication. And I have a whole list of journals that have been very kind to my work and publishing it, and then trying to send new ones out too. I would recommend the publication database called Duotrope, as a very helpful aid for publication. Basically, that lets you know what works are, what journals are calling for papers, calling for material, the kinds of material that's there, and it allows you to keep track of your publication submissions. So it's uh, very helpful. Duotrope is the name of that. I've given subscriptions to some of my former students to get them started, and they've had some good luck.
0: I mean, as writers, we, we certainly need readers, whether it's mm-hmm. in the process, whether it's you know, after publication. So any, any tool, any resource that helps us connect with those readers seems right. like a great idea.
1: I think so. Yeah, definitely.
0: All right. Well, it has been quite enjoyable talking to you, Chris. So Same here. good luck in your uh, retirement. Thank and, you, Eric. Uh, mm-hmm. We look forward to reading your future publications.
1: Thanks, Eric. Take care. We thank
0: you all for tuning in to this episode of The Writer's Edge, and we hope you tune in next time. You can submit your own podcast to be featured on ours, and you can even submit your own stories about the Writing Center or any questions that you may have. If you'd like more information about the Writing Center itself, visit our website at nova.edu forward slash WCC. You can also reach out to us at wcc at nova.edu or 954-262-4644. Thank you again for tuning into The Writer's Edge, and we'll be back on your airwaves real soon.